Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. This podcast is being uploaded on the morning of Monday, December 21st, meaning there are just 10 days remaining in the year. Except for us, we are out of here. This is our final podcast of the year. We are bailing on this horror show of 2020. You guys want to stick around for another 10 days? That is up to you. See ya, suckers. Wake us up in 2021. <laughs> we are out. Yes. Well, as you know, Kieran, I have uh, undiagnosed narcolepsy. So <laughs> there's a very real chance I'll begin my 10-day hibernation before we even finish recording this podcast. I might I might conk out and it's just Showtime Boxing with Mulvaney for the last few minutes of our podcast. I have a nice soliloquy planned for about two thirds of the way through the podcast. That would be at least good nap potential for you. (laughs) Okay, Uh, but, you know, the plan here is not just to nap. It's to be out out until the year is over. Uh, But, yeah, look, this is just smart strategy. 2020 can't 2020 you anymore if you figure out a way to game the system and make it become 2021 for podcasting purposes a week and a half early. We're basically vaccinating ourselves against whatever remaining awfulness 2020 has to offer. And if the price is one fewer podcast for the listeners, well, too bad. Yes, uh, we're just prepared to suck that up. Yes. (laughs) Uh, But we're going to go out with a bang. We have a lot to get to uh, in this final part of the year. Uh, We are going to be beating other boxing podcasts to the punch by revealing our 2020 year-end award winners. Uh, We will also cover what's been a fairly busy news week, highlighted by the Boxing Hall of Fame's announcement of the class of 2021. We also have Saturday's Showtime triple header to break down. But let's start with the return to the ring of the biggest star in the sport. Uh, and uh, as seems increasingly to be inching toward consensus, the best pound for pound fighter in the sport. Uh, I'll give my take on that in a bit and uh, we'll be curious for yours as well, Kieran. Uh, but first, let's talk about the fight. We are, of course, talking about Canelo Alvarez, who dominated Callum Smith in front of about 15,000 fans at the Alamo Dome on Saturday night. He couldn't get a knockdown or the knockout, but arguably won every round against the much taller previously undefeated super middleweight champ. Scores were 119-109, 119-109, and a hard-to-figure 117-111. I was particularly struck early by Canelo's defense. He had no trouble making Smith miss, and soon he was closing the gap, and it just took a couple of rounds before the only drama left in the fight was the question of whether Smith would last the distance. Canelo hit him with every punch imaginable, uppercuts, body shots, right crosses, you name it. The smaller man became the stalker and just completely bossed the bigger man around. Kieran, were you surprised by how easy Canelo made this look? Uh, you know, and we've been talking for about a decade, incredibly, about how yeah. Canelo improves from fight to fight. Was this the best Canelo performance yet? It was a remarkable performance to behold, actually, I thought. I mean, there's so often, you know, with the exception of you know, maybe half the rounds or more against Gennady Golovkin, he generally looks there's this preternatural calm about Canelo in the ring. And, and I think a large part of that comes from just obsessively detailed preparation and training. I think, I think, you know, I have, I've had the opportunity in the past to take the briefest of peaks behind the curtain of a Canelo camp. And it's just simply relentlessly professional. I think there are no so's prepare and prepare and Canelo executes and executes. There's no fuss. There's no flash. He's just all business. That's how he is in camp. That's how he is in interviews. And, and that's how he is in the ring. He's he's not the fastest man you'll ever see in a boxing ring. He's not the hardest puncher you'll ever see in the boxing ring. He doesn't even necessarily have the most fluid of movements you'll ever see in a boxing ring. But he combines all those attributes into just a, a phenomenally good package. And I think Saturday night was the perfect example of how a shorter man can use feints and footwork to outjab a much taller man. Yeah. And how having established that jab... He can then fake and feint it to land power punches from with either hand. Um, it was like a casually skillful dominance was the sort of note that I made when I was watching it. And it was just on another level. I mean, I was initially, over the first few rounds, I was a bit disappointed in Smith's showing. I, I thought it was unadventurous, sort of made poor use of his physical advantages, even though we've known for a while that he doesn't 
necessarily fight as tall as he should but by mid-fight that had kind of shifted to being more of a case of marveling of what Canelo was doing to make Smith look ordinary and unadventurous uh, you know and to be fair to, to Smith he tore a bicep quite nastily I think in round four and then got it worse in round six it looked a horrible mess at the end um, I, I didn't think he looked terribly good at the weigh-in and maybe he does move to move to 175 but you know this was really a case I thought of a real ring genius at work. And, you know, you talk, you mentioned how we've, we've been talking, like you said, for surely a decade now about how he gets better from fight to fight. And I was thinking to myself watching this, yeah, you know, Floyd Mayweather was incredibly smart to fight this man seven years ago <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, before he was fully formed. Because, you know, since then, yeah, look, I mean, just... Everything has, has sort of gradually Im Im improved and progressively improved. And it all really came together, I think, on Saturday night for, you know, I think you can make a case for it being, in many respects, the most complete performance of his career. You know, um, the, the defense, as you said, was just magnificent. I've almost got tired of talking about the defense. I vaguely recall, if I recall correctly, the first time that you and I specifically highlighted his defense in a post-fight pod was the Kodo fight, maybe? We did a post-fight in, in a locker room somewhere at the MGM. Right. Uh, or Mandalay, wherever it was. And, and I feel like that was the first time we were like, wow. I really noticed Canelo's defense, and now it's just become a, a, an integral part of, of what he does. And it's also just the way he controls the space, and that's what enables him to have such great defense because he's able to, no matter whether his opponent is tall or short or aggressive or bigger or stronger or faster, he's somehow just able to get himself at exactly the distance he wants so he can see those punches coming, slip them, and be in the perfect position to, to fire back. Um, it, it was. I thought it was a tremendously impressive performance. I must say. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, look, you mentioned pound for pound. Um, coming into this fight, after Vasily Lomachenko losing to Teofimo Lopez, you and I both had Terence Crawford at number one, and I think that was the majority opinion. Uh, you still participate in the ESPN.com poll, in that Crawford had nine first place votes, Canelo had three, but there have been that that you know, minority of people who have for a while been pushing Canelo as number one. Did this fight change your mind about who is number one pound for pound fighter? Next time you're asked for ESPN, are you still going to put a tick next to Crawford or are you going to Canelo at this point? I have been asked. I have uh, sent in my uh, email back to them already as we record this and uh, I won't beat around the bush with my answer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I made the change. Um, look, pound for pound is supposed to be regardless of size who's the best. You know, if you inflated Crawford slightly and you shrunk Canelo slightly and they're both the same natural weight, who do you pick to win? That's supposed to be your answer for who's number one pound for pound. And resume is part of the conversation, but it's secondary. And my gut still tells me, as great as Canelo looked in this fight, that Crawford is slightly, quote unquote, better. But it's gotten really close, closer yeah. than it seemed a year ago. And who's the best can only be based on suppositions so much. It has to be largely based on evidence. You know, how have you looked in the ring against opposition that can bring out your best with an emphasis on recent performances? What you did in your last fight or two counts the most. And what you did, say, five years ago counts for something, but not as much as what you did two years ago and so forth. All of which is a long way of saying the resume portion of the pound-for-pound pound picture has tilted so heavily in Canelo's favor that, for me, it outweighs whatever slight talent and ability edges Crawford might still have. You look at the last three years, Canelo has faced Gennady Golovkin twice, Daniel Jacobs, Sergei Kovalev, and Callum Smith. Plus Rocky Fielding. That one, that one means nothing, but the other five all mean quite a lot. Yeah. He's currently the man in two weight classes, middleweight and super middleweight, and he's near the top at 175. Yep. That's pound for pound stuff, uh, beating top guys in three divisions at once. I was expecting him to beat Callum Smith, but have at least a somewhat tough time doing so. Yep. And he made it look easy the way Prime Mayweather and Roy Jones and Pernell Whitaker frequently did when facing similar levels of opposition. Uh, Crawford just isn't facing that same caliber of opposition. And, you know, if he was out here right now screaming for Errol Spence, 
saying he wants that fight next and nothing else matters, maybe that attitude could buy him a little more time atop my pound-for-pound list, but he isn't doing that. He gives no indication that he wants to challenge himself like Canelo has. So I have been persuaded by this performance to put Canelo at number one, Crawford number two, then Inoue, Spence, Lopez, Lomachenko. Uh, All that said... The people barking back at me on Twitter that it isn't even close, there isn't even a conversation, Canelo is number one by a mile, <sighs> you, you people need to lay off the four loco. <laughs> That's, uh, it, it, look, because if you think Canelo lost one or both of his fights to Triple G, uh, now I personally had them both a draw, but the great majority of people believe he lost at least one of those fights, and some people scored the Daniel Jacobs fight against him. You can't tell me it isn't close when Canelo arguably took a couple of L's in the very recent past. Uh, yes, it is close. It is definitely up for debate. There is still a perfectly valid case for Crawford. Uh, and if Crawford and Spence do fight, there's a strong likelihood the winner will deserve to be number one. But for now, Canelo is my pound for pound champ. Uh, what, what about you, Karen? I, I know you don't formally make a list anymore, but who is currently your pound-for-pound pound king? No, I think you made really good points there. And I think it, it is, you know, if it if also doesn't make sense to say that Canelo is by miles the number one, it's right. hard to make the case, harder to make the case that he isn't. Um, you know, like you said, let's take the the resume portion of it. There's really nobody at the top echelons of the sport except for Manny Pacquiao, who has anything like as accomplished a list of opponents at this point. Errol Spence is doing very well for himself. He's moving himself right up that list. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you just go on, on the resume portion alone at this point, and it, it's it's Manny and, and, and Canelo, really, uh, to this point. And, and really, over the last seven years, with the exception of Golovkin, uh, Canelo's basically, since the Arislandi Lara fight at least, he's really dominated those guys that he's faced. And I think the other key element is that you also touched on. Look, I think that Canelo has for so long been the star of the sport that his actual in-ring skills have almost been a little bit overshadowed, hmm. right? Um, you know, that I seem to remember years back we talked about, you know, where, you know, I think when Canelo had sort of asserted himself as the number one in the sport after Floyd's, you know, retirement. And we were talking about, you know, whether the star in the sport was also the number one in the sport. And at that point we felt that he wasn't like he was right. the biggest, but he was like number four or number five or something like that. But as you, as you talked about, he's been getting better and better. He is just showing he's very old school in the way that he keeps adding wrinkles to the fundamentals that he brings in. Um, he's, he's a real throwback fighter in many ways, mm-hmm. uh, a willingness to fight, top opposition, a willingness to go into various weight divisions, uh, just the way he's consistently improving his, his technical abilities. So, yeah, I think you summed it up very well that there is so little a gap right now in terms of in-ring performances and in-ring skills and such a large gap in terms of resume that it's hard to make the case that it isn't Canelo right now. I agree with you. And look, Based on the interview with Errol Spence that Mannix did during the DAZN broadcast and right. Terence Crawford's response to that on social media, we probably shouldn't be holding our breath for that Spence Crawford showdown at the moment. So, yeah. um, so it's hard to see that resume gap. You know, obviously it's all posturing at the moment, and uh, but still, uh, it you know that that resume gap is is still there, and the way Canelo is going, it's hard to imagine that he can continue to improve. But he hasn't stopped improving from fight to fight yet. <laughs> right, so right. I, maybe we still haven't even seen the best of the man. Um, it, I, I think it's a, an increasingly Im- impressive career. I've, I'm just, you know, just very impressed with the way he goes about his business. Yep. Um, but, you know, you mentioned this, right? If, if Canelo really is number one, even if at the very worst now he's 1A, does this mean we should actually prompt a little bit of a rethink of the positioning of a guy who a lot have been willing to throw overboard? That man who you mentioned went 0-1-1 against Canelo. Arguably should have gone no worse than how you had it, 0-0-2. Probably should have taken at least one win. And that's, of course, Gennady Golovkin. Um, On Friday, the night before Canelo beat Smith, Golovkin scored four knockdowns in seven rounds to really easily dispatch mandatory challenger Camille Zeramata, the referee stopping it between rounds seven and eight. Um, 
Golovkin's 38 years old. It was his first fight since that razor-close win over Sergei Derevyanchenko 14 months ago. We were looking for signs as to what he had left. Uh, were any of your questions in that regard answered by watching that fight? Should you ever set foot outside of the hotel, you will be shot. Don't miss the new Showtime limited series based on the international bestseller. For the last four years, I've been a prisoner. Why are they keeping you here? Starring Emmy Award winner Ewan McGregor. This is the brave new world that you dreamt of. Be very careful. You are still a prisoner here. Everything in this new world comes at cost. This is still my country. A Gentleman in Moscow, now streaming on Paramount Plus, only with the Paramount Plus with Showtime plan. On May 23rd. I want to go back to normal. What's normal? The Paramount Plus original series, Evil Returns. We've already hunted werewolves and demons. And now what? A baby antichrist? <laughs> Prepare yourself. You will not beat us. For the end. I have visions of hell. Make it stop. Make it shut up. You're not gonna survive this. Evil, the final season. Streaming May 23rd. Only on Paramount Plus. Not totally. We, we got some information, but nothing definitive. Zaramata just isn't very good. Uh, mm -hmm. wh what a joke that some alphabet body says, you have to fight this guy or you lose your title. That's ridiculous. Zaramata had beaten no contenders himself. He just isn't world class. He's somewhere in that range of 2016 Dominic Wade and 2014 yes. Marco Antonio Rubio. And uh, you remember what 2016 and 2014 Triple G did to those guys? Yeah. Those were second round KOs. I think prime Triple G stopped Zarameta in two rounds, maybe three tops. So the question here is, is Golovkin that far removed from his prime? Or was he intentionally carrying Zarameta to get some rounds in? I think it's probably a bit of both. Um, yeah. He's not washed, obviously. Uh, I am. Uh, and and my whole timeline is full of people celebrating this fight starting at 8.30 p.m. on a Friday. <laughs> We're all washed. But Golovkin is not. He's aging, fading, yep. but not washed. He looked good in this fight. I wouldn't say he looked great. The power is still mostly there. The jab looks good. Some solid body work. But you can only learn so much when the guy in front of you provides no real resistance. I'd say... You know, I, I hate when people do this, like estimating percentages type thing, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, I'd say we're looking at something like 85% of prime Triple G, but uh, it's impossible to know for sure off this fight. I think the Derevyanchenko fight was much more telling. Um, how, about, how about you? How good do you believe Triple G is right now? And as we've discussed Canelo is a promotional free agent, a network free agent. He has a lot of options regarding where to go and what to do next. But certainly a third fight with Golovkin is going to be on the table. Off these two performances that they both just had this weekend, scale of 1 to 10, how interested are you in that trilogy fight for the first half of 2021? So my thought about Golovkin and how he looks is not at all dissimilar to yours. Um, uh, it, it's very difficult to tell. He's going to look better against, like you said, a, a Camille Zaramata than, than a Sergei Derevyanchenko. I remember before he fought Derevyanchenko, when we were previewing that fight, you said something to the effect of this will be a great measuring stick because it will show us how he does against a guy who's good, but not on that, you know, Jacobs, Canelo kind of level. Right. Um, Derevyanchenko might actually be a little bit better than, than we thought going into that fight, as I think he emphasized with his performance against Jamal Charlo. Saramata is perhaps a little bit worse, like you right. said. Um, but I just, you know, going on the eye test, I thought physically he looked better than he's looked for a little while. I thought he looked lean and strong. He seemed lighter on his feet than he's done in a while. Um, his defense was better than I remember it being for even longer. He actually, like, committed to the defense a little bit, which he hasn't done very much. He, he decided to move his head in there um, lot, a lot more than he has done. That might just be a consequence of being able to do that because Zeremeda's punches weren't particularly fast. Um, he could see everything coming. He looked like he was very relaxed in there, um, that he was perfectly happy to keep going until he got rid of him. Um, but I agree with you that a few years ago, he wouldn't have had to wait. Um, the, the first or second punch that he dropped him with would have probably been the end of it. It, it looks to me as if, and we talked about this with Anthony Joshua the other week, 
that he's transition continuing a transitional style as he ages mm. that i think he's already shown us in previous fights that there's a little bit less of uh, emphasis on the body punch that the jab that was always very important and that everything fed off on is become increasingly important uh, as a part yeah. of his arsenal and i think we've seen that for a few years now um and, and that i think we're going to see less as he goes on of that single punch concussive just getting people the hell out of there to being more of a methodical thumping them, weakening them with the jab and just slowly taking the life out of them kind of a fight. And I think, I think that's going to be more of what we're going to see from Gennady over the final couple of years of his, of his career. Um, as for like the Canelo matchup, look like a lot of folks in boxing, I tend to overreact what I've just to what I've just seen. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so uh, in a sense, I'm more enthusiastic. So my initial response was, Oh my God, I'm much more enthusiastic about a third fight now than I was. And then when you look at Canelo and what he did and in the cold light of day, how competitive would a third fight really be? Look, Canelo looked a freaking monster at 168. That's the other thing we didn't talk about. Mm. Um, he's physically big now. Yeah. Um, given his proclivity for taking advantage of being the A-side, which he is perfectly entitled to do, you, I can't see Canelo saying, you know what? I'll go down to Gennady's level. He's going to make him come up to 168. And I think he's going to have substantial advantages over him there, Canelo. Um, and as good as Golovkin looked, I thought Canelo looked better at just about every aspect of his fight against a superior opponent. Um, all of that said, if fans are allowed back in substantial numbers by, by May 8th next year, I suspect... For the reasons we talked about last week, like, you know, this is the one opportunity for him to get a huge amount of money from DAZN and so on and so forth, that a third Golovkin bout will be next. I think that Golovkin did what we talked last week about him needing to do. He looked lively. He looked good. He scored an impressive, dominating win, but not suddenly so impressive and dominant that it looked as if the old Triple G was back and Canelo might think, "Ah, oh, wait another year for that third fight. Uh, I, think he, I think he just <laughs> threaded that needle intentionally or not just well enough to put him in line to be next for Canelo. Uh, I do think if crowds are back, if we're recovering from the pandemic, I, I think probably a third fight now at 168 would probably be the most likely thing for Canelo. But if it isn't, who do you most want to see Canelo fight? G gotta be Arthur Better BF. That's uh, oh, th that's the dream fight for the hardcore fans. Um, oh, just yeah, <laughs> that's that's the correct response to quietly say to yourself, <laughs> "Oh my goodness, um, Canelo is operating at such a high level right now that I'm not sure there's anyone at 160 or 168 who really poses a serious threat to him." Um, you know, Caleb Plant is good, but Maybe Canelo walks right through him like he did Callum Smith. Uh, you're absolutely right that Canelo against Golovkin is an event that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I hadn't thought about the weight aspect of it, but you might be right that that, that actually makes it more complicated. Uh, neither of neither of these guys likes the other and will want to right. concede too much in that negotiation. So that, that gets a little tricky, but let's say it does get signed. I just I don't think Golovkin is competitive with Canelo at this point. Um, Jamal Charlo is probably the best challenge at 160. You also have Andrade there. You have Bevel at 175. These are all solid fights, but Canelo versus Better BF that would be something special. Pretty close to even money in my view. I remember right after Better BF uh, scored scored his big win to claim the the title there that we were. T first starting to talk about this fight and felt like Canelo would be a bit of an underdog there, although certainly a live one. I don't know that he's an underdog anymore. Uh, I think it's pretty close to even... We'll have plenty of time to talk about it in the weeks and months ahead, uh, you know, after we sleep through the rest of 2020. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but but that is the fight to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's... um. I, I Let's just end this podcast now. That's not going to get any better. <laughs> All right, see you in 2021, I got, folks. I got sweet dreams to see me through the end of 2020 now, so there you go. Um, but while uh, Canelo and Golovkin obviously got most of the attention this weekend, and deservedly so, uh, there was also a Showtime triple header on Saturday night. It looked appealing, at least on paper, before heads started clashing and Mohegan Sun bubble judges started getting involved. Uh, so the main event... As we talked about, it was a replacement fight for a replacement fight. After first Nordin Ubali and then Nonido Donaire fell out. Uh, it was a bantamweight clash 
between Emmanuel Rodriguez and Raymark Gabalio. Uh, looks like a promising star matchup, as we talked about last week. Uh, in the event, Rodriguez boxed cautiously. Uh, the untested Gabalio had trouble catching up to him. Uh, at the end of 12 rounds, it looked as if, you know, Rodriguez had wrapped up a dull decision win and we wouldn't have much to say about it. Uh, Showtime scorer Steve Farhood had a 118-110 for Rodriguez, which seemed about right. And one of the judges, David Sutherland, had Rodriguez also winning 118-110. Um, but John McKay had Gabalio up 115-113, which was a... Um, <laughs> but Don Trella had it 116-112, making Gabalio a split decision winner. Eric, how did you have it? I hate that we keep having to ask this question, but what do you make of the scorecards? Um, do you have any interest on based on what we saw in seeing either of these guys on Showtime again in 2021? So I scored it nine rounds to three, 117-111. I don't mind anyone who scored it a little closer. Um, Rodriguez was clearly outboxing Gabalio in most of the early rounds, but he wasn't opening up, wasn't really going after him. And in the second half of the fight, there were a lot of rounds where he wasn't doing much. He was moving and being purely defensive. And when he would land a good punch that knocked Gabalio off balance, he never pounced and followed up as he should have. So to a great extent, he has himself to blame for the result. Um, He was clearly a superior boxer. Gabalio was outclassed, wasn't quite ready for this step up. And Rodriguez let him win some of the later rounds and make the fight closer than it should have been. But no way in hell did Gabalio win seven (laughs) or eight rounds as those two judges had it. Even six rounds seems impossible to me. That is atrocious judging. And I want to single out Dontrella, who had it eight to four and gave five of the first six rounds to Gabalio. Really? Yes. His scorecard was posted online, and I don't know how that is possible. That means... You're just scoring based on who's throwing more punches and Mm. you're completely ignoring what's landing and what's effective. (sighs) Sorry, I'm not I'm not going to mince words. I'm left to assume Dontrella doesn't know how to score a boxing match. That scorecard, the way he got to 116, 112, it really pisses me off. These are Mm. fighters livelihoods. Rodriguez, as frustrating as his poor performance was. He doesn't deserve this loss on his record. Uh, And we've seen some awful scorecards in the bubble. Mm. I think all these fights at Mohegan Sun have exposed that Connecticut needs to revamp its pool of judges because several of them have proven not up to the task. This scorecard from Trella giving rounds to Gabalio early in the fight when he was being taken to school. Mm. That's as bad a scorecard as any of them. Uh, Paramount Plus and the National Park Foundation present A Mountain of Zen. This Earth Week, you can live stream seven national parks for seven days on Paramount Plus. Paramount Plus, official streaming partner of the National Park Foundation. As for the fighters and whether I want to see them again, I don't know. Uh, yeah. Gabalio is pretty raw and pretty limited. Uh, I don't mind seeing him again, but I can't get too excited about his prospects as a serious future yeah. contender. And Rodriguez, he's clearly a capable fighter. But he has some thinking to do. The, the the cautious way he fought, that gives me reason to believe he isn't over getting knocked out by Inno. Mm, yeah, could be. Um, so there were two undercard fights on this card, and they were disappointing in a different way. Uh, and, and there were some obvious common threads between them. So let's address them together here. Uh, in the show opener between bantamweight Southpaw's unbeaten prospect Gary Antonio Russell had built a lead over veteran former titleist Juan Carlos Payano when the fight was stopped after the sixth round due to damage suffered by Payano from a clash of heads. The cut didn't look like much at all. I could barely see it on TV, and it, and it wasn't actively bleeding, but the ringside doctor said he could see the nerves around Payano's eye, and that's why he stopped it. Uh, lucky for Tyson Fury, he didn't have this particular doctor in his <laughs> fight with Otto Valin. Um, anyway, they went to the cards. And Russell won a technical decision, 59-55 twice and 58-56. It was an ugly, sloppy fight to that point. I had Russell up 58-56, but it was all 
rather inconclusive. Uh, then in the next fight, welterweight mega prospect Jerron Boots Ennis was battering veteran Chris Van Eerden spectacularly for about two minutes before their heads came together violently and Van Eerden's forehead looked like someone had taken a divot out of it with a nine iron. <laughs> uh, the fight was stopped. No need for any explanation from any doctor as to why. And it was ruled a no decision. Kieran, what, if anything, did we learn about up-and-comers Russell and Ennis in these aborted bouts? Well, we learned more about Russell because we saw more of him on Saturday and had seen less of him previously. Um, I was reasonably impressed because we didn't know going in um, what we were going to see with Russell, given that it was such a step up in caliber of opposition against a guy in Piano who's been there and fought very best folks recently with very good records um, and been winning or been losing very close against them. Um, Piano just fought. He was clearly fighting that kind of fight that, oh my goodness, it's an absolute nightmare for an up and coming fighter yeah. to fight. Uh, but God, it's like one of those things you've got to get through on your way to that. You've got to like see if you can handle this kind of a guy. And he was handling him. Uh, he wasn't completely dominating him, but I thought he was comfortably uh, ahead. I think your scorecard sounds just fine. Um, you know, it felt as if we, we can't know, but it did feel as if we were heading towards a Russell point win. Um, but I think I think we learned enough to determine that, you know, it, it looks like he might not be quite at the skill level of his brother although it's again hard to say against such a scrappy opponent as that but i think we learned enough to determine that you know he's he's a legitimate prospect and he's worthy of being seen again and he's got that russell family calmness in the ring under mm -hmm. pressure and he's he's definitely got that physical ability in those fast hands i'd be very happy to see him again uh and also i just kind of smile just seeing big brother in the corner well there's just something i don't know there's just something very nice about that family yeah that, uh that i just kind of like i like i i like that um as for ennis uh i picked him to win by i think night and throwing stuff but you picked him to win in five i'm not sure the fight was gonna go that far right um we can't know for certain but this felt as if it was en route to a blowout which would have been very impressive had that happened um look ennis is so strong he's so skilled but we know that anyway yeah. Um, we didn't get a chance. I would have loved to have seen him have the opportunity to show how good he was by getting Van Heerden out of there, which it certainly looked early on as if that might well have been the case. Van Heerden looked very uncomfortable yes. early on from that assault. Uh, obviously frustrating for both of them, uh, not least for Van Heerden, who had been out of the ring for 16 months before this, returns home with only three quarters of his head. Um <laughs> You know, but I think when we come back, we'll probably see Ennis stepping up another level in, in opposition. This would have been a, a, a good, decent fight. Obviously, it wasn't the originally planned opponent. It was as good a replacement as you could have expected um, in the circumstances. But, I mean, the fact that a fight can end like this just shows that there comes a point where you just don't want to waste too much time working mm -hmm. your way up. Ennis has, is the goods. Let's see him up against some real quality opposition now. Let's see him push in towards a title fight, I think. So... Gets the uncomfortable part of the podcast coming up here <laughs> for some well you see officially this card wraps up our picks competition for the year uh here is the alleged final score that the mainstream <laughs> liberal media is trying to force us to accept uh eric going into this uh was allegedly leading 63 to 52 we both picked rodriguez to stop caballo and got no points there we both picked ennis to stop van heerden as i mentioned there was nothing either of us could have done differently to get any points there uh in the opener eric had piano by split decision i had russell ko 10 so i picked up one point uh making the proclaimed final score <laughs> 63-53. All I know is this. Heading into the shutdown, I had a comfortable <laughs> lead. Everyone was saying that I was clearly going to win it. It was just, you just look at the available odds and I was clearly going to win. Coming out of it, suddenly Eric starts getting these points from nowhere. Then somehow Charles Conwell broke Wendy Toussaint's nose at exactly the right moment of their fight. And then with me poised to make my final strike on the final day, we get two headbutts and a ridiculous decision. I think we know what's going on here. I have hired the very best lawyer, Mr. Lionel Hutz, to prove my case. <laughs> I am confident of victory. Uh, do I see uh, black oil leaking from Lionel <laughs> Hutz's brow right now? Is that what I see? <laughs> uh, I've said it before and I'll say it again, Kieran. 
I won the final five years of ring theory picks over Detloff. I, I just beat you for the second year in a row. There is no shame at all in being the Barkley to my Jordan, the, the Venus to my Serena, the Stones to my Beatles. There can only be one goat. You know, sometimes you just come along at the wrong time in the wrong era against a, a generational talent who simply can't be beaten. So the sad reality is I'm actually the Nate Robinson to your Jake Paul. <laughs> I don't want to be Jake Paul in any in any analogy. I, I really liked being Jordan Serena Beatles. Can we go back to that one? I don't think so. All right. Well, in any case, the point is, Kieran, uh, don't 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 get discouraged. It, there's not a whole lot you can do. It's, it's not you. It's me. It's all right. No, it's just the media. <laughs> all right. Um, we we will we will let that part of the podcasting year end, and uh, we're in fact uh, finished talking about the final major fight weekend of 2020. Uh, with all due respect to David Morrell Jr. and Mike Gavronsky, who are headlining a Fox card the day after Christmas, the year is effectively o- over from a fight perspective. So let's hand out some awards from the very best of what we saw in the ring this year. It was, of course, a strange year uh, in the world overall, uh, but it trickled down to boxing and made for a strange year in our sport. There were no fights at all for about three months, and when fights returned, they were mostly B-level and C-level fights for a couple of months as things ramped back up. So the selection for the year-end awards is skimpier than in most years, but we actually still ended up with at least one or two worthy candidates in every category, you know, from the winners alone, I don't think you'd be able to tell that we only had about 75% of a year to choose from. Uh, Anyway, I will get it started with my pick for round of the year. That's our first award round of the year. And there were a few outstanding rounds to choose from. Uh, You're going to be hearing the names Jose Zapata and Ivan (laughs) Branchik a lot during this award segment. Uh, I think rounds two and five of their fight were both among the best of the year, both featuring both fighters on the canvas. Uh, The sixth and final round of Gervonta Davis versus Leo Santa Cruz was spectacular. Just two weeks ago on Showtime, we saw a great round, round nine of Chris Colbert versus Jaime Arboleda. I might be forgetting some others, but for me, the winner in a close call is the second round of Zapata Baranchik. One knockdown apiece, plus another knockdown Zapata scored that Kenny Bayless missed. And just generally wild nonstop action for the whole three minutes, more consistent than any other round in that fight. So that's my pick. What's your pick, Kieran? Yeah, I certainly hear you in that. Um, and certainly in terms of just stuff happening uh in uh in terms of totally crazy good god am i really watching this uh i think as you mentioned that fight is going to be uh up front uh with a lot of these categories um i am going to go a slightly different route uh, my round didn't have the epic swings back and forth uh didn't have those sort of multiple holy shit moments although it did end with one mm. um but uh, i'm i'm gonna pick You've already mentioned it. Around six of Javante Davis, Leo Santa Cruz on Showtime pay-per-view. Santa Cruz has started strongly in the fight. Had been more aggressive than maybe Davis expected. But Davis had asserted himself over the next three. He was in control of the fight as they entered the sixth. But Santa Cruz came right back at him, firing straight punches to Davis's face, digging him with body shots and uppercuts. Davis came back strongly, ripping into him with body shots and uppercuts of his own. Uh, You know, then Santa Cruz started to close Javante's right eye. Uh, Davis looked like he'd repelled the, the assault. Santa Cruz drove him back across the ring. It was arguably the best quality round of a genuinely high quality contest. Uh, it was probably the best round Santa Cruz had in the fight up until the point where it wasn't. <laughs> right. And that point where it wasn't wins my next award, he says with a wonderful segue mm. for KO of the year. Um, there are several contenders for this category uh most notably probably alexander povetkins uh, over dillian white and if you pick that one i certainly won't blame you uh showtime had another strong contender with joe george's knockout of marcus escudero yeah. which like povetkin white and indeed like davis santa cruz was part of the great year of the uppercut <laughs> yeah 2020 was um the thing i especially loved though about the davis santa cruz ko was something that we talked about in the podcast afterwards and honestly i didn't even notice until davis himself tweeted about it um in the moment watching it it was just it was a viscerally satisfying knockout a punch of absolute beauty that davis had been looking to land from the moment the first bell rang 
Um, and it immediately had us all doing that universal boxing, oh, that we see when there's that perfect knockout. Um, but I did appreciate it all the more when I saw the sequence as, as Davis himself tweeted it out. Right. Santa Cruz throws a right hand, it hits Davis. He throws another. Davis parries it. He throws a third. Davis knows it's coming, slips underneath it to his left. And then with that Santa Cruz right hand kind of blocking Leo's vision, bam, launches that left uppercut to send Santa Cruz instantly out cold i thought it was absolutely fabulous but like i said some really good contenders out there what do you reckon you with me on this one though i i am uh we have the same pick i think the only other runner-up i would mention that i don't believe you mentioned is zapeta branchik uh it has <laughs> to course. be mentioned yeah. uh that was it's hard to beat the drama of that knockout uh what an amazing year of big knockouts and certainly uppercut knockouts especially given the fact that we missed a quarter or so of the year but uh yeah in the end davis santa cruz has to be the pick perfect punch elite opponent high stakes big pay-per-view main event Santa Cruz totally down and out. That always helps when it's not, it doesn't end with a guy sort of almost getting up. I mean, he was out. All the ingredients were there in this one. Uh, Next we have upset of the year. And I guess the most high profile upset of the year was Teofimo Lopez over Vasily Lomachenko, but it really wasn't that big an upset. We all knew Lopez was a very live dog. I think the two biggest upsets both came pre-shutdown uh, back in January. It's hard to believe that this was this year, uh, but but in January, Jason Rosario uh, stopped Julian J. Rock Williams. That was a big shocker. And then in March in Brooklyn, just before the world stopped turning, uh, Robert Hellenius KO for Adam Kaunatsky. I had forgotten how wide the odds were on that fight. Uh, looked it up. Konatsky was as much as a minus 2,500 favorite, uh, and you could get plus 900 on Hellenius as the underdog. That's basically as wide as the first Ruiz-Joshua fight. Uh, and so that's the one that I'm picking, uh, despite the fact that I never believed all that much in Konatsky. Um I'm just thinking in terms of the public perception of this fight, it was supposed to be a cakewalk and certainly Hellenia seemed washed years ago. Um, I knew that Konatsky was nothing special, but I didn't think 36-year-old Robert Hellenius, who had been stopped a couple of fights earlier by Gerald Washington, would be the guy to beat him. Uh, Kieran, agree or disagree with my pick? First thing I got to say, I, one point that I agree with was I could not believe that those fights were not in 2019. I, uh, <laughs> holy crap, this has been a long ass year. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to go with the other one. Uh, okay. I am going to, to go with Rosario J rock. I get what you're saying with your pick, uh, uh, you know, and obviously, you know, Rosario was particularly at that time, a better quality, seemingly opponent than Hellenius. So you'd think it would be less of an upset, but at the same time, Adam Kanachki was no, j-rock williams either um you know and j-rock and i think what's key to this was that he was riding high on the back of his own upset win over jarrett Hurd, which really was in 2019 i think right probably that was (laughs) that sounds right sounds right i can't can't even tell anymore i'm like a dog i can't tell if something happened last week or in 2016 (laughs) i just i have no idea um and really you know after that after the first round which was quite even rosario really he just didn't let williams into this fight like he progressively discouraged Williams as the fight went on. And especially after he caused J-Rock's left eye to swell and, and just, it looked like J-Rock just couldn't handle it at all. And then, you know, Rosario turning it up in the fifth and, and Williams just flat out wilted. Uh, it really shook up that junior middleweight division, at least until Rosario met Jamel Charlo right. on Showtime pay-per-view uh, nine months later. But uh, yeah, I totally get your pick, but I'm going to go with uh, Rosario over Williams for my upset that apparently happened this year. Fair enough. That's uh, it's uh, not, not a lot between those two in my view. No, indeed. Um, but you know, while both of those were decent fights, neither were anywhere near being contenders for fight of the year, which is our next award. Like you said, despite the fact that we only had nine months or so of fights to choose from, and really six months of A-level fights, right. um, boy, there are some really, really good fights. Uh, the recent rematch between Juan Francisco Estrada and Carlos Cuadros uh, was just exceptionally high quality. Uh, more recently than that, Masayoshi Nakatani's comeback win over Felix Vadejo that we talked about last week, mm-hmm. cracking fight. Um, on Showtime pay-per-view, I think Jamal Charlo's win over Sergei Derevianchenko was a strong contender for fight of the year yeah. uh, for a little while there. Davis Santa Cruz that we talked about was a cracker. Uh, I must be missing some. 
But there can really be only one winner this year. In any other year, all those guys would be in with a good shot. It has to be Cepeda Baranchik. Um, good God, what a what a five rounds of, of absolute control chaos. Um, if somehow you have forgotten the basic parameters of how this fight unfolded, Baranchik dropped Cepeda twice in the first round. Zapeda returned the favor in the second, but then Baranchik dropped Zapeda again. Then Zapeda dropped Baranchik once in the third and once in the fourth. So, entering the fifth round, each man had been down three times. Only the ropes held up Zapeda after Baranchik punched in the fifth. So that was four three in knockdowns. But in the eighth, the eighth total knockdown, equalizing the total number, that was the decisive one. Zapeda folding Baranchik in half and leaving him out cold for several minutes. It's a weird fight of the year in that it's not one that you would look at and talk about the quality of the fight of the year, but in terms of absolute batshit craziness, (laughs) what the hell am I watching? What's going to happen next? Mm -hmm. It's fight of the year by a country mile. I know you're with me on this one. Yeah, I am. This has to be the pick. This is the easiest category this year of all the ones that we're doing. Um, yeah, I mean, this is a fight that I think we're going to be talking about for many years to come. Uh, four knockdowns apiece in five rounds. That, that just doesn't happen. <laughs> uh, it's one of those fights that if it happened in a boxing movie, you'd say it was completely yeah. unrealistic. Exactly. Rewrite it. Make it more believable. So, yeah, this is the easy winner for fight of the year. Uh, and that brings us to the final award, fighter of the year. This is... Pretty clearly, I'd say, a two-man race. And as we discussed with Brian Campbell a few weeks ago, you normally don't want it to want to give it to someone who only fought once during the year in question. But hashtag 2020, not much choice here. The top two are undoubtedly Tyson Fury uh, for paying off Mark Breland to get the stoppage win against Deontay Wilder uh, and Teofimo Lopez for outpointing Vasily Lomachenko. Some decent honorable mentions. Uh, no, we don't have Clay Collard to include among them, uh, but we do have Errol Spence, uh, who, if we did a comeback fighter of the year, I think he's in that conversation, mm-hmm. probably along with Chocolatito Gonzalez, I'd say. Um, also, Gervonta Davis is in the mix. Uh, both Charlos had good years. Emmanuel Navarrete. I think I'll squeeze Canelo in there at the last minute yep. off that performance. Uh, and, of course, for being the king of quarantine, Joseph Parker has to get Absolutely. a mention. Uh, but one and two, in some order, are Fury and Lopez. My order is Fury number two, Lopez number one. Mostly because, well... He beat Vasily Lomachenko Uh, and uh, nothing against Deontay Wilder, but there's just no comparison in terms of quality of the boxer defeated. I disagree with Joe Goosen and and anyone else who scored at a draw. I think Lopez definitely won, even though it was very close. Um, He fought a great 12th round and won that round clearly, in my view, to put an exclamation point on the victory for a 23-year-old to step up like he did and win that fight and outbox for much of the bout that opponent. No doubt in my mind, Teofimo Lopez, despite sporting just a 1-0 record on the year, is the fighter of the year. Uh, I assume it's between Lopez and Fury for you also. So who you got, Kieran? It is also between them. And and while for a substantial part of the year, it was Tyson Fury's award to lose, uh, in the end, I have to give it to Teofimo Lopez. That Fury's was a hugely impressive win over a man who damn nearly knocked him out when last they met. And the sheer dominance of it was significant and and earned some extra points. But I cannot reasonably spend several years pitching Vasily Lomachenko as the best boxer, not just on this planet, but on all known planets, (laughs) and then not reward the guy who beat him and beat him well. Um, The only other time Lomachenko lost as a pro was in his second fight against a veteran world champion who didn't make weight and spent half the fight punching him in the gonads. And even then Lomachenko came back strong and nearly won it down the stretch. And, you know, in comparison... I thought Lopez was a, a, a very obvious and very clear winner. Yes, once Lomachenko got going in the second half of the fight, he closed it down considerably. But I made the same point here that you just made. What sealed that, what sealed the win, seals his treasured Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney Fighter of the Year award <laughs> was that 12th round. The fact that he stood and traded and won that final frame against the pound-for-pound pound number one who is coming back strong, to leave absolutely no doubt as to who won, uh, except 
apparently, as we shall talk about later, in the mind of Vasily Lomachenko. <laughs> yeah, no, Tiafimo Lopez absolutely deserves that. I have a suspicion it will not be the only time he wins Fighter of the Year award either. Yeah, that's a, a reasonable suspicion. So, uh, all right. So we're in agreement on that one. Uh, and uh, and by the way, our, our longtime listeners might recall that on the HBO podcast, we used to name a podcast guest of the year. Uh, we forgot to do that in 2019 in our first year with Showtime. We're bringing it back here. So, uh, so now the Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney 2020 podcast guest of the year and what do you know it's a tie a, a tie between steven espinoza moro ranallo steve farhood al bernstein gordon hall abner morris raul marquez barry tompkins and brian custer crazy how that shook out uh, congratulations yeah, I, to all the co-winners that's right but if there were to be a tie break it's steven espinoza because it's always going to be steven espinoza <laughs> yeah yeah good good point yeah yeah all right if you're listening steven right now you won. Congratulations. If any of the other guys are listening, uh, we'll send you a separate podcast with a different uh, and <laughs> right. different ending. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and you all know what it's about. <laughs> all right. Um, so you just actually named quite a few Hall of Famous and future Hall of Famous in that list. Uh, and shortly, we will wrap up the show by discussing the 2021 uh, Hall of Fame class. But first, uh, some news here. Uh, Vasily Lomachenko got some attention late in the week with an interview he took part in in which he commented on the scoring in his fight with Teofimo Lopez. Um, as you just talked about, uh, one of the scorecards was, was was too wide, but most observers agreed with the result um, or, you know, at best, scored it a draw. Uh, Lomachenko apparently sees things entirely differently, Eric. Uh, he said, it's about being bribed. There is nothing honest about the judging. I don't know whose game it was. I do think it was someone's game. Well... What do we think about that? <laughs> it, it's weird uh, how often boxers turn to the conspiracy theories. Yep. Um, elsewhere in that interview, I think if if I'm interpreting him correctly, and it, it was somewhat broken English, uh, but I think he was saying that he has watched the fight and he scored it a draw. I think that's what he said. Uh, that's fine. If he had just said that, if he had said mm. it should have been a draw, the scorecards all sucked, especially... That one, Julie Letterman was watching a, a different fight or, or had her filled out her scorecard in advance. If, if he'd said something like that, I think it would have been fine. But you cross over into directly accusing someone of taking a bribe. Julie Letterman has been doing this a long time and has a good reputation. Seems very unlikely to me. Uh, plus, if you have been bribed... Once you have Lopez up seven rounds to zero or whatever, and Lomachenko <laughs> yeah. is having some good rounds in the yeah. second half, wouldn't you give him a few of those to make it look good? No, she just had a bad night and, and, and didn't appreciate what Loma was doing in spots, and she handed in a pretty bad scorecard. Um, I'm bothered by what Lomachenko said here. Mm -hmm. But, you know, as of now, one bitching and moaning excuse-filled interview he still has a ways to go to catch Deontay Wilder. Uh, but it, the, look at those two together. It's all a very potent reminder that these are elite athletes. And when you get used to winning, it can be very hard to accept losing. Uh, this is one loss I think Lomachenko really needs to accept and learn from if he wants to have any hope of, of winning a rematch. Yeah. Uh, in other news, there were several fight announcements over the past week. Let me run through them all quickly. The Miguel Burchelt-Oscar Valdez fight we're all looking forward to, which was postponed by COVID, has a new date, February 20th. A fight we're similarly excited for, Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez versus Juan Francisco Estrada II, is signed for March 13th. January 30th will be a busy day. As we've learned, Caleb Plant will meet Caleb Truax in the biggest all-Caleb fight in boxing history. And in Russia on the same day, both Artur Beterbiev and Sergei Kovalev will be in action. And some Showtime news for January. The first Showbox card of 2021 has been announced, a quadruple header taking place in the Mohegan Sun bubble on January 20th. And three days later, January 23rd, the rescheduled showdown between Stephen Fulton and Angelo Leo. I'm pumped for that. Uh, Kieran, anything quick to say about any of these fights? Yeah, just that um, 2021 is already definitively better than 2020, um, <laughs> yeah. assuming these all come off. Uh, Fulton Leo and Chocolatito Estrada alone. I, I, again, another reason to just go to sleep and wake up next year, because <laughs> what a fantastic start to the year. Uh, and I'm actually really looking forward to the Caleb Bowl, too, actually. That'll... Uh, <laughs> 
Uh, and, and of course, Bichel Valdez, like you said, we've been yeah. looking forward to that for a long time. That's a tremendous start to the year. Let us hope that the pandemic and other things allow all those to happen. Uh, we also shouldn't forget the previously announced and secured first big fight of the year. And because we won't be here next week, uh, because of the whole sleeping thing, uh, we'll <laughs> g- let's give it a quick preview now. It is, of course, the January 2nd title eliminator tilt between Ryan Garcia and Luke Campbell. We've talked about it before. We set it up, but we should, you know, touch on it one more time. Very quickly, Eric, how do you see that going? So I looked up the odds. Uh, they're interesting. Garcia is about a minus 300 favorite. Uh, Campbell is like a plus 230 <clears throat> underdog. That actually seems just about right to me. Um, I, I favor Garcia. And I have a tough time betting either side at those prices. Um, It's a big step up for King Rye, a real test for him, a test he certainly could fail. But I like what I've seen from him lately. I think he will pass. And my gut is telling me he lands some big shots and actually takes Campbell out in the later rounds. How about you? A very similar. Um, Look, Luke Campbell's a legitimately very good fighter. He's tall. He's awkward. He's skilled. But the available evidence we now have, like enough statistically significant sample to suggest that he is good enough to fall just short Mm -hmm. against the very best. Uh, And while it's too early to say that Garcia is the very best, he's clearly a legitimate talent. He's another one who seems to be improving constantly. Uh, I think he's got too much speed, too much power for Campbell. Uh, I think that maybe Campbell will start out well. You know, he'll have the experience. Maybe there'll be some things for Garcia to try to figure out. Um, Campbell might even be ahead on points after a few rounds, but I do think that Garcia will get into his stride. I could see a unanimous decision win for him, or I can also, I see something like an 11th round stoppage win after the punishment just starts accumulating. This, this could be a very significant fight uh, for Ryan Garcia. Um, we will talk about it in our first podcast of next year, but... Let's wrap up 2020 with the big news of the week. Uh, the International Boxing Hall of Fame announced its class of 2021, and as expected, it is going to be star-studded. Uh, the holdovers from the class of 2020 in the modern category, Bernard Hopkins, Juan Manuel Marquez, and Shane Mosley, they will be joined in June if induction weekend can go forward next year. And God, if it can't by June 2021, then <laughs> good Lord. Uh, they will be joined by Floyd Mayweather, Vladimir Klitschko, and Andre Ward. What? What a half dozen. Um, Those were the top three vote getters this year. Nobody else got over the 80% threshold. So the other two first ballot nominees, Miguel Cotto and James Tony, will have to wait. I have a couple of thoughts on Cotto, unsurprisingly. But first, anything to say about the three who did get in? These were all pretty straightforward and obvious choices. Uh, Based on his in-ring record and accomplishments, Floyd is the slam dunkiest of slam dunks. Yeah. Vladimir... I was among his fiercest critics in the boxing media, and I still say he is a no-brainer slam dunk Hall of Famer. And Andre Ward, maybe you can poke holes in his resume and find an excuse not to vote for him the first time around. He's a little less slam dunky than the other two, but he's still a slam dunk. He, He won the legit title in two divisions. Reached number one pound for pound, won Olympic gold also for what that's worth. Never officially lost, although one fight, maybe he was lucky to get the decision. And he went out on top. So very easy votes there. Uh, And I voted for Cotto and Tony also, although I guess not enough of my fellow voters were (laughs) on the same page as me. So, Mr. Mulvaney, the floor is yours. Grumble, if you wish, about your sweet, sweet baby Miguel (laughs) Cotto not getting voted in. Miguel Cotto will be a Hall of Famer. Uh, I I think he should have been a first ballot Hall of Famer. Uh, And I really would have, on a personal level, enjoyed him going in as a part of this amazing sort of double class. Um, Depending on why he isn't there, I I could get it, right? For all we know, Ward and Klitschko may have only just scraped 80% themselves or came short of 80%. Um, Knowing the way that boxing writers vote, it's entirely possible. Um, I could also get an argument if some voters were thinking, yeah, you know what? Mayweather, Klitschko, and Ward are clearly of the gold standard, and they should absolutely go in on the first ballot, but I want them to separate themselves. Mm. I'll do Kodo next year because he was very good. But up against the very best, up against Mayweather, up against Pacquiao, up against Canelo, he, he fell just short. It's like if Mike Messina was on the same ballot as Pedro Martinez and Randy Johnson and Roger Clements, you're like, yeah, Mike Messina's a Hall of Famer. But right. um, so if that's the, if that's the thinking, I kind of get it. Um, 
And I've done that in the past with some with some guys that I thought, well, I think he could be a Hall of Famer, but this person is clearly so much better. I, I want them to have the stage to themselves kind of a thing. So I hope that that's the reason he didn't reach 80%. Um, it's not because I hope the boxing's hipster brigade thought it was important to virtue signal vote for, oh, I don't know, other Puerto Ricans who may have been on the ballot. Um, I'm hoping it's because a lot of Cotto's votes went to, say, Rafael Marquez, who also totally should be in yeah. the Hall of Fame and deserves to get in there. Um, but I hope you and I get to go to induction weekend in 2021 uh, when there will be this amazing class. I hope we're also there in 2022 when Cotto... And Tim Bradley or Rafa Marquez or Ponselec Bon John Cam join Roy Jones Jr. in Canastota. Um, that will be another good year to be there. Yeah. Uh, it will be a big year for women in the uh, uh, Hall of Fame, as several will be going in. Layla Ali and Ann Wolf joining 2020 holdovers Christy Martin and Lucia Riker in the modern fighter category. 1970s and 1980s pros Marianne Trimiar and the late Jackie Tonawanda in the trailblazer category. And our good friend, Dr. Margaret Goodman, in the non-participant category. Very happy, especially for our friend Margaret, um, who's done so much for fighter safety, both with the Nevada Commission and with VADA. Um, big fans of both Layla Ali and Wolf. Very happy for them, too. I will say this, though. Two classes of modern fighters for women and the inductees so far have all been American or very well known in America. Yep. I do wonder how many of those who voted for Ann Wolf could tell you much more about her career other than the right hand with which she polaxed Von Ward. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, Regina Holmich, who retired with a professional record of 54-1-1 one and, one, mm -hmm. and whose farewell fight was watched by 8 million people on TV in Germany, is still on the outside looking in. Uh, I don't have a vote for the women's category. So those of you who do, fix this. Regina <laughs> Hulmich needs to go in the Hall of Fame. Well, uh, you commented on uh, exactly what I wanted to comment on with the women. Oh, okay. that, that, that there is an American bias developing with, with this category. Uh, I do have a vote. This was the first time that I had a vote in the female category. And... Uh, you will be pleased to know, Kieran, that I did vote for Regina Holmick uh, over Ann Wolf as my second choice this year, which is not to say Ann Wolf is not worthy. Um, Absolutely. But uh, I assume that this uh, pro-American bias will eventually straighten itself out, hopefully sooner rather than later. Uh, and I just want to echo what you said uh, about Dr. Margaret Goodman. Very happy for her. She used to write a column for The Ring when I was an editor there. Uh, she was an excellent guest on the old Ring Theory podcast one time. Perhaps we'll have her on this podcast as well at some point. But uh, congratulations to uh, Dr. Goodman. Uh, a few other names to run down in other categories. In the old-timer category, the Springfield Rifle Davy Moore will be inducted, and we have to include his nickname to distinguish him <laughs> from boxing's various other Davy Moores. Uh, two more non-participants in addition to Margaret. We have Cutman Freddie Brown and manager-slash-trainer Jackie McCoy. And in the observer category, writer George Kimball and former Showtime boxing president Jay Larkin. And I want to say a little something about Jay because, I mean, I'd met George Kimball, but can't really say I knew him. But I did get to know Jay a little bit, and I really liked him. Met him in person just once, but interviewed him on the phone many times. And he just had a welcoming way about him never made you feel like he viewed it as a chore to talk to the press. Mm. It's hard to explain, but th there was a certain warmth that I always felt from Jay. I particularly remember interviewing him for an article I wrote in 2007 on the 10th anniversary of the bite fight. And Jay had departed Showtime two years earlier, so he wasn't involved in boxing anymore. I believe he was doing something with MMA, uh, but not boxing. And we just had a great conversation as he told a bunch of stories about that night in Las Vegas. Uh, it was just truly sad when, when he got sick and died fairly young, just 59 of a brain tumor. Uh, but he left behind a really important legacy at Showtime, guiding the sports division for 20 years. I've been voting for both Jay and Seth Abraham, formerly of HBO, mm -hmm. for the last couple of years. I thought it would be really cool if they got inducted together. Uh, that isn't happening, but... I am thrilled that Jay Larkin is getting this posthumous honor. He belongs in Canastota. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, I think you you brought that up maybe last year when we were talking about the Hall of Fame, that just how nice it would be if the two of them went in together. It's a mm -hmm. shame they haven't. Um, 
but yeah, uh, very happy uh, in the memory of Jay and indeed for George, who, like yourself, I I interacted with him a little bit a couple of times, and he was as kind and generous with his time as could be, uh, and obviously, of course, an absolutely fabulous writer. Um, I'm going to continue also banging the drum in the Observer category for John Shepard and Bob Canobio, respectively, the yep. founder of BoxRec and co-founder of CompuBox. I can't think, really, of two observers non-fighters who've had such a massive influence on the way people consume and think about boxing. Um, they sort of affect all of us involved in boxing on a daily basis. I do hope that both of them at one point get in. Yep. All right. Uh, I know you're fixing to wrap up the show here, Kieran, and, and, and wrap up our year. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, before you do, though, just uh, a quick word about the podcast as 2020 ends and 2021 is about to begin. This was a strange year for everyone, a difficult year for almost everyone. As we've remarked many times, lockdown impacted the two of us far less than it impacted most people. We're both built for this, uh, at least in the short term. Um, I've actually found myself fraying around the edges a bit as the year wore on. Uh, But anyway, I'm really glad we were able to keep doing this podcast throughout the pandemic. It was something I look forward to almost every week, and we had some fun with it, and I think did some of our best podcasts this year, just talking about TV shows we were binging and interviewing some first-time guests over Zoom and talking about how they were coping with the pandemic and all that. Um, And of course, podcasting is a lot more enjoyable when you know people are actually going to hear it. Uh, So a thank you to all our listeners for their support. Hopefully we gave you guys a nice distraction from the living hell that was 2020. (laughs) Um, If you are a fan of the pod, and I assume you are if you've made it to the end of this episode. Uh, we don't ask for much, but one thing you can do to support the show is to write a review on Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star rating. I don't quite know why that stuff helps, but apparently it helps. Uh, so so do that. It will help ensure we keep putting this free entertainment in your ear holes. Uh, as Kieran said at the top of the show, we'll be back next year, uh, and we'll be trying a few new things, some new segments, mm-hmm. new twists, shaking it up a bit without abandoning any of the mulviness and raskiness you've come to love. Uh, so before you say it, Kieran, I just want to say to our listeners, thank you for hanging out with us. Enjoy the holidays, and we're looking forward to a big 2021 yeah one of the big changes that i certainly commit to make in 2021 as we hopefully slowly emerge from this pandemic is i am going to commit to consider thinking about actually starting to wear clothes while doing this podcast (laughs) and you've ruined it there it is and i'm asleep it is uh but with what dreams with what dreams that about you um yeah just to follow on look i also want many thanks to you for your co-hostery over the last 12 months and beyond uh and of course thanks to brian daly for his continued yes. support uh this year and into next year and to matt ryle and courtney mag as well for everything that they do for us uh, thanks to all our wonderful guests from joseph parker to brian custer to Derek james to joe goosen um danny garcia even carl frotch um <laughs> and of course Mauro Ronaldo, among so many others it's been a yeah. wonderful year of guests as eric said it would be nothing without you the listeners so thanks for being with us thanks for interacting with us on social media it's been a horrible year that's not it's just been a horrible year and i don't doubt for a second that almost all of you have had plenty else to think about other than what eric and i think about Carlos Monzon series or fights. The fact that you have wanted to put some time aside to listen to us every week is is fantastic. And I hope that we've been able to provide a little bit of escape from the awfulness. Um, For those of you who have been struggling, for those who are continuing to struggle, for those for whom the holiday season will be an extra burden, you are not alone. There is help. Reach out to friends and family. If you can't do that or don't want to do that, do visit nami.org. There are many options available to help. We got quite a few good responses when Moro and I talked about mental illness the other week. I know it's important to a lot of you. You are not alone. And this year is very nearly over. I promise. (laughs) Um, I hope, we both hope, that you're able to make the most of this holiday season and what remains of this historically dreadful year. We shall return, as Eric mentioned, in 2021. Until then, please... Be safe, be kind, and most of all, be well.